faith acts. Uh, James doesn't, uh, his book really is about genuine faith, and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time defining it. He just says this is what it looks like. If a person has genuine faith, real faith, then this is how it plays out in their life. And um, James really is sort of the closest thing in the New Testament we have to what's called wisdom literature. The wisdom literature are the Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, these kind of things. Um, and a lot of people have a, a lot of commentaries say there really isn't a theme to James, but I think there is. And I think he's hitting all these different things saying real faith acts this way. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to talk about real faith in the body of Christ. And uh, so look, if you will, in James chapter 4, verse 1, and uh, watch what he says here. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Well, it's a terrible thing when countries go to war. Anytime a nation or countries, they go to war together uh, for, against one another, it's always a terribly, terribly sad thing because oftentimes, uh, most of the time, the people fighting the wars on the battlefields are not the ones that declared the war. They're not the ones that are, you know, in power to do it. They're having other people fight their wars for them. And uh, some of them are, you know, what we might call a just war. So a country uh, invades another country unprovoked, and we can see some reasons behind a war that other others in history have been a little bit silly one of the silliest ones I've heard of is called the pastry war the pastry war started in uh, actually the beginning in 1828 when a French chef uh, named Raymond Tell had a pastry shop in Mexico and a lawless mob destroyed his pastry shop well he applied to the Mexican government to pay for his pastry shop uh, because he lost his, lost his way of living and so he applied to them. They uh, immediately rejected it. No, we're not going to pay for your pastry shop. So Ray Montel was upset. So he applied to the French government and said, make Mexico pay me for my pastry shop. And uh, the French government didn't pay any attention to him either. So it was pretty well forgot by everybody except Ray Montel. He was still mad about it, I think. Ten years later, ten years later, nothing's been said. It somehow came to the attention of King Louis-Philippe who found this out and demanded the Mexican government pay Ray Montel back for his uh, pastry shop with a 90% interest rate. Wow. <laughs> that's not 19. That's 90%. And so the Mexicans refused to do it, and the French blockaded Mexico and invaded the city of Veracruz. Stayed there till Mexico relented and said, okay, we'll pay up. So the French... Um, the French went back home, and Mexico did not pay up. They got mad and came back. <laughs> okay, all right, we're going to do this again. So they come back again and, um, in 1861, and uh, we started the, the whole blockade invasion process again. But around that time, 1861, the French Empire ran into some real difficulties, and they weren't able to maintain all the things they were doing. And so they, they kind of just kind of forgot and dropped, and everybody just sort of forgot about the pastry war. Except Ray Montel, <laughs> his pastry shop. And it's really kind of sad and silly to see countries going to war over a pastry shop. It's even sadder and silly when you see wars and fights inside of God's family. And that's what James is talking about here in James chapter 4, the first 12 verses of this chapter. He's talking about when there's disunity 
in the body of Christ. And as he looks at that, he says, genuine faith works to resolve disunity, not add to disunity. And he lays out a pretty strong case. I mean, it's really eye-opening to look at the words and the way that James lays this out because he's saying, you know, there's some disunity in the churches that James is writing to. If there wasn't disunity, he wouldn't have to write this. And so there are people arguing, they're, they're fussing, they're saying ugly things to each other, about each other, and, uh, and it's staggering how important this is. It's easy, I mean, it's easy to say, well, you know, people just all get along, it's not that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. Je Jesus said in John 17, 23, I am, he's praying to his Father, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity such perfect unity, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That is staggeringly serious. He says one of the ways, one of the best ways you have of letting the world know that Christ was sent from heaven by his Father and that the Father loves them is by the way the church practices unity, the way we talk to each other, the way we talk about each other, the way we respect each other, the way we honor each other, the way we encourage each other, all have serious spiritual implications, even eternal implications, according to James, uh, John chapter uh, 17. So let's go take a look at this. Some of these people that, G that James is writing to, as you think back and look kind of between the lines, you can see these are real human beings that he's writing real letters to, and he say, and I can almost imagine this church reading this, they read this letter to the church, and they get to chapter 4, and James like, all right, what's up with all the fighting here? And you can almost imagine people looking around the church, <laughs> you know, giving people the evil eye, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you can almost imagine that this could almost start a worse situation if they don't handle it right, because they're going to... Um, they're going to accuse each other and blame each other. But all through the New Testament, we see this. In the church at Corinth, they were suing each other. And, James, and, and Paul said, what are y'all doing? The Galatians, Paul says, y'all are biting and devouring each other. And I don't think that's literal, but that's pretty staggering language to say. For, 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 I mean, if you're saying you're biting and devouring, that's a pretty big argument, okay? That's, that's not something small. In Ephesians, he says... You need to cultivate spiritual unity. And even in probably one of his favorite churches, the Philippian church, he calls out two women and says, y'all need to start getting along. Wouldn't you love to have your name in the Bible as somebody couldn't get along with another church member? Wouldn't that be horrible kind of a thing? And so this is, um, this is the, and there are still today mean and hateful things said by Christians, about Christians, and sometimes to Christians. One person wrote this. The world watches these religious wars. He's talking about infighting inside of a church. He's not talking about the wars outside of the world. He says, the world watches these religious wars and says, behold, how they hate one another. Instead of what they should be saying is, behold, how they love one another. So, how do we deal with the disunity in the body of Christ? It happens sometimes because we're all sinful, we're all selfish. You put enough of us together, and there's going to be some hurt feelings. There's going to be some things that are said that shouldn't be said. 
There's going to be some accusations that aren't valid. Some are valid. And so you're going to have some situations. People are going to see things differently. And sometimes people that are as right with God as they know how to be, seeking God, are still not going to agree on everything. So how do we deal with the disunity in the body of Christ? I want to talk about just two things tonight. One is we're going to talk about the reasons for disunity. And then secondly, we're going to look at the resolutions. What do you do about disunity? James gives us three or four reasons why there's disunity in the church. Now, there's a downward spiral going here. And it kind of catches us off guard because he started in James chapter 1. And he says that you should rejoice when you have trials. And so there are people in the church that are having a really hard time. And how many of you know? When you're going through a really, really hard time, it's easy to take that on somebody else. And so you got that kind of thing going on, and then you got people that are listening to the Word, but they're not doing anything about it, okay? James says you need to be a doer of the Word, not just a listener. It's like, you know, like you're looking in a mirror, and you see what's wrong, but you're not correct. Nobody's repenting. Nobody's correcting. Any, nobody's adjusting their life to Christ. And then you get to James chapter 2, and there's favoritism in the church. Courting the rich, courting the people that are of importance in the community. I, I was at another church in Mississippi one time, and somebody told me, hey, try to make friends with so-and-so because he's a county, county supervisor. He can really help us here. Show a little favor, you know, show some favoritism. Show, show, you know, some, some people are more important than other people. James said, James is saying, no, no, no. <laughs> we're, all, we're all sinners in need of grace, right? We're all equally valuable to God. And then, and then he says, there's some people that say they have faith, but they don't really have faith. They say they have faith, but their life says they don't. And don't you know, there's somebody in the church saying, I don't think they're really saved. I've had people ask me, what percentage of the church do you think saved? No. And I've had people say, Billy Graham said 90% of the church was, it, it was, is lost. And it, I had a friend of mine write the Billy Graham Association, and they say he's never said anything like that. But Billy Graham, anything that anybody's dramatic, it's always Billy Graham said it, you know. And I've had people recently ask me, how many people, well, I think probably 80% of the people in the church are lost. I don't know. That's not my job. That, but you see that if, if, they, if they say they have faith, they're not acting like they have faith, somebody's going to make an accusation. And what's going to happen? If Holt says, I find out Holt says, you know, I don't think Brother Barry's really saved. That's going to hurt my feelings, right? If I said, I don't really think Holt's very spiritual, that hurt Holt's feelings, right? And so you get these kinds of sayings going on, these kind of deals going on. It creates disunity in the body of Christ. And then it, so it starts barreling down. And then you got people that are operating on worldly wisdom instead of God's wisdom. See, all this thing snowballing into some real problems inside of the church family. And you get to James 4.1, and he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, he's referring to arguments. He's referring to not getting along. He's referring to breaking the biggest commandment that there is, which is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is a really, really big deal that James is talking about. He's talking about God's people not loving each other not willing to get along, getting trenched in their own ideas, their own ways of thinking, their own ways of doing things, and expecting everybody else to conform to them. And it's extremely, extremely serious. I mean, you think about the language he uses. He uses words here like wars, like kill, 
like adultery, like sinners, like enemies of God. All these are kind of words that James uses. Strong, strong language. And it's, it's, um, it's a little bit surprising. Because when you, we finished last time at the end of James chapter 3, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, peacemakers, who talk about God's wisdom, the people who have God's wisdom are peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And you sort of get the idea that things are going to turn a little bit. The, the, the book's going to get a little bit better, a little nicer, a little bit more um, encouraging. And remember, that's the last verse of James chapter 3. James did not write in chapters and verses. Um, somebody came along thousands of years later and put the Bible in chapters and verses, and I'm so grateful they did. <laughs> so, so grateful they did. But James, did, he's just he's continuing to write, so catch that up, and we run it together, and it says, Peacemaker, people have God's wisdom are peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes the fights and quarrels among you? It's like a whiplash, like, whoa, <laughs> a minute there. That's a, that's a quick change of subject here. Don't they come? Don't the fights and quarrels come from your desires? Individual desires, people in the churches, desires within the whole church. Do they come from your desires that battle within you, within our own hearts and within the heart of the church? Adrian Rogers says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Warren Wearsby said it this way, the war in the heart is helping to cause the wars in the church. Let's just say three or four reasons. That's what we're talking about reasons for the disunity. Number one is selfishness or self-centeredness. Look at it, if you will, uh, selfishness or self-centeredness. People who are at war with themselves. Listen, guys. People who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires. They want their way and they aren't getting their way are always unhappy people. I want life to go this way. I want people to agree with me. I want people to, to kind of help me accomplish my deals. They never enjoy life. Instead of being thankful for the blessings they have, they complain about the blessings they do not have, the things they want that they can't have, and it makes them unhappy, and unhappy people spread what? Unhappiness. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about it this way. He says it speaks of sinful desires which war against your soul. It sounds like James is again saying, man, Satan has the ear of the church. Y'all are walking worldly wisdom. Y'all are listening. You know, somebody's got, you, somebody has our ear. Are we listening to the voice of the Spirit and godly wisdom like James 3 talked about? Or are we walking a different way? In verse 1, he talks about selfishness, selfish desires. Now look, when you put, you just think about it in marriage. When you put two selfish people together in a home and have them live together, they're going to have problems, right? And so you put two selfish people, they're always around each other, around each other every day. You're going to have some issues somewhere or another. Now, you put three or four hundred of them <laughs> in a church family and say, here's a mission we want you to accomplish. You're going to have disagreements. You're going to have some issues that are going to come to the forefront. So, number one, there's selfishness. Number two, it starts with selfishness, and it goes kind of the same thing, but selfish desires. Out of my selfishness, I want something. <laughs> Look at James 4, 2. You lust. Now, it doesn't, we tend to think of that sexually, and it doesn't have to be sexually. This is, you want something uh, selfishly. You lust, you want something, and you don't have it, so you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, you 
do not have because you do not ask. Now, he's probably exaggerating for effect. This is called hyper, I hope he's exaggerating for effect. This is called hyperbole. We use this all the time. We say things like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, right? That thing costs an arm and a leg. Uh, she's so dumb, she thinks Taco Bell's a Mexican phone company. You know, <laughs> hadn't heard that one before, have you? <laughs> These are hyperboles. It's that exaggerating for effect, and that's what James is doing here. I hope, that, I don't think they're really killing each other. <laughs> you know? I don't think they're murdering each other in the church. But Jesus said what? You're angry with your brother. You're guilty of murder. I think that's what James, of course, that's James' brother, right? So I think that's what James is talking about. There's some anger issues going on here in the church, and instead of handling it well, instead of going to God with it, it's causing issues. See, if you don't take these feelings to God, you're likely to take them out on each other. So these hurt feelings, remember they're going through trials, somebody's talking about them, now they got some things they want to see happen, and they're not happening. They want some status. They want people to think well of them, and it's not happening. If you don't take your hurt feelings to God, you're going to take them out on somebody else. And um, if you don't, if you just can't handle hurt feelings, um, and I mean this with kindness, and everything, I, I, I can, church is not the place for you. <laughs> Now, it is the place for you, but you're going to get your feelings hurt. I'm going to get, see, it's, when, when nobody's hurt my feelings recently, not talk bad about me that I've heard or about my wife or about my kids, then this is easy to deal with. But boy, when somebody says something ugly about you or ugly about your kids or the criticism, especially if you're trying to do something for Jesus and somebody criticizes you and they accuse you of bad motives or something like that, man, that hurts your heart. And if your children are doing something and they're trying to do it for Jesus and you believe in your heart, like I would believe in my heart, that they're doing it out of a pure heart, they're trying to serve Jesus and you're so happy about it and somebody says something ugly about it, about them and about what they're doing, that gets tough, doesn't it? And you got to do something with those feelings. you got to take them somewhere. And if you don't take them to God, as I said, you're going to take them out on somebody else. The third thing. Uh, by the way, I heard about uh, one guy, his buddy was going, um, going surfing one day. And so they got to the place where they're going surfing, going to have a fun day, had a day off. Everybody else was working, had a day off in the middle of the week. And they got there, and it was a parking meter where they're going to surf at. And so the guy decided he would pull his credit card out and use his credit card on the parking meter. And there was a 35-cent charge for using a debit card. And he lost it. That's a racket. Just nothing but a money-making racket. And he started complaining and griping and fussing. And finally, his buddy's like, dude, I'll give you 35 cents. <laughs> it's, it's 35 cents, okay? But it's so, it can get so wound up around the axle so quickly if we don't take our loneliness and our hurt feelings and feeling left out and feeling not needed and feeling hurt. If we don't take them to God, we're going to end up hurting somebody else with them. And see, the other thing about it is we all have these needs. We all have loneliness. We all have a need to be loved. We have a need to love somebody else. We have a need for joy. If we don't find those in God, we're going to hurt somebody. Because if I take, if I'm a lonely person and I'm a hurt person and I'm insecure and I don't feel like I belong, and I don't feel like I measure up, and I'm miserable, and so I'm going to cure that by getting married? Guess what? 
and make somebody else miserable. <laughs> you can drag somebody right on into that misery. And so what happens is you get two selfish people who don't feel enough love in their love tank. They don't feel like they belong. They feel insecure. They don't feel like they're valued or appreciated. And so they get married to cure all these things, and that doesn't cure it. So what do they do? They have kids. And that's not going to cure it either, right? Now all of a sudden you got two uh, unhappy, un feeling unloved, uh, feeling left out, feeling jealous, and all this other kind of stuff. And now you got them sleep deprived. <laughs> you really got some issues going on at this point. And so what do you do? It's almost like James anticipates what's happening because they, he says, hey, you need to pray about this. And they're saying, oh, I already prayed about it. I didn't get what I prayed for. <laughs> you see, a lot of times, our arguments are more about our relationship with God than they are about our relationship with each other. Only God can meet the deepest needs of our heart. Somebody else just cannot, they're not capable of doing it. It's asking too much. Now, look at verse 3. Like I said, it's almost like James anticipates them saying, well, now I prayed about this and it didn't help. James says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying when you pray, you're praying with the wrong motives. Jesus taught us to pray, what? That God's name will be honored. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be great. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what happens when we get disunity in the church, we get relationship problems in a marriage, what happens is we tend to pray, I want my will to be done, and I don't want my name to be great. That doesn't mean great upon the world, but just I want to be valued. I want to be appreciated. I, nobody appreciates me. I want to be respected. I want to be looked up to. I want to be admired. This goes back well, to James 3.1 when James says, not many of you need to be teachers. Why? Because it's more of a prestige thing here. They're trying to get to be liked and get to be admired and feel like they get their, their validation from somebody else. And so when you're in a relationship struggle, marriage with your kids, inside of your church, anytime you're in a relationship struggle, one of the things that's the best thing to do is to go to God honestly and say, God, would you honor yourself here? God, would your, we, you're the king. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life and the person's life I'm struggling with. Would you do whatever it takes to honor your name? That usually means both people, both parties are going to need to forgive. Somebody's going to need to apologize. Somebody's going to need to do some things. We're going to talk about just a minute, like humble themselves. And so it's good to say, God, honor your name. And then the other thing, other reason is they've got a strange friendship going on here. Watch the progression here. Selfish people can't get what they want, so they pray. And when they pray, they don't get what they pray for because they're not praying right. And it doesn't mean you've got to watch and pray about whatever comes to your mind, but pray honestly, okay? And then James 4, 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, means that you're an enemy against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, the world here doesn't stand for the physical world. You know that by context. It stands for the values of the world. Now, once again, I think adultery is talking about hyperbole here. I don't think there's literally, a, I mean, it could have been, but I don't think there's literally, because he's talking about the whole church here. You adulterous people. What he's saying is the love that rightfully should go to God, you're loving yourself. 
with that kind of love. And that makes you a friend of the world because the values of the world, the big three, are money, sex, and power. And that leads to things, morphs into things like prestige, being well thought of, being admired, sinful pleasures, getting people to do what we want them to do, using people and loving money instead of loving people and using money. Friendship with the world says my will be done and my name will be great. I will be well thought of instead of people thinking well of Jesus. David Platt said it this way. This is where we realize hostility toward one another is really evidence of hostility toward God. If I've got a broken relationship with a Christian brother or sister, it's almost always an evidence there's something not quite right in my relationship. Somebody's got a bad relationship with God. Somebody's relationship with God needs to be fixed. The root cause of internal wars, external wars, external fights, quarrels is rebellion against the will of God. Friendship with the world always leads to spiritual adultery. And this, you know, as I said, this is probably hyperbole. Uh, God does this in the Old Testament. He calls, he calls Israel his wife. We're called the bride of Christ, right? Jeremiah 3.20. And Jeremiah 3.20. Um, scripture says, this is God talking to Israel. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. David Platt again says, we've satisfied our flesh with the things of this world. With more possessions, nicer cars, bigger houses, better luxuries, we have pursued positions, plaudits, and popularity. We have lived for what's best for us in this world. And in the process, we've run around on our God. We need to repent and come back to Him. Paul in 2 Timothy called it being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And God said, I don't want this. Look in verse 5. James chapter 4. Or do you think Scripture says for that reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has called within us? It's what he's saying here. There is a type of love that belongs to God. See, jealousy can often be a bad thing, but jealousy can be a good thing within the right relationship. And within a marriage relationship, there are certain places where you ought to be jealous. Um, if your spouse is hanging out with a member of the opposite sex and they're going out at night and they're working late every night and they're not being, they're being distanced with you, there's a reason for jealousy there. And God is saying, I am jealous because what? I deserve your highest love. I deserve your first love. I deserve your best love. And so these are some of the reasons for disunity. Remember, it goes back to our relationship. It says more about our relationship with God them with each other. So how do you resolve it? What's the resolve of this unity? We look at verses 6 through 12. That's a tough picture. Tough picture that James paints here. And uh, you almost get the idea, that, uh, we'll get to just a second, but you almost get the idea that he's going to say, and I'm done with y'all. <laughs> you almost get the idea, like, if y'all can't do any better than this, just forget about it. It's not what he says. Look at what he says in James chapter 4, verse 6. But God gives more grace. That's when I want to go, whew. <laughs> right? Like, man, I thought you really going to get after us right here. God gives more grace. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows grace 
to the humble. God wants us to depend on his grace, not depend on ourselves. And God is saying, yeah, maybe somebody said something they shouldn't have said. Yeah, maybe somebody mistreated you. Yeah, maybe they didn't value and appreciate what you did. Yeah, maybe you really sacrificed and didn't get your name in the bulletin. You know, maybe, maybe you were mistreated. But you've mistreated people. And you've been ugly to people. And I've given you grace. And I want you to take the grace that I've given you. And I want you to give that to somebody else. The key to forgiveness for me is to remember how much God not only has forgiven me, but continues to forgive me. And the more I realize that I'm no better, you know, maybe we can learn to depend on God better, but in my flesh, I'm no better than I was 20 years ago. The key is depending on Christ, not being, pro oh man, I'm a spiritual giant. No, 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 none of us are spiritual giants. We're all humble people depending on God, trusting His grace to form a family uh, out of us. One commentator wrote it this way. Whatever we may forfeit, when we put self first. We cannot forfeit our salvation. Somebody say thank you, Lord. There's always more grace. No matter what we do to him, and by the way, anytime we mistreat somebody else, we're mistreating God. Whatever we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources never at an end. His patience are never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. An unsaved person, there's a time limit on grace. You've got to get saved before you die. The saved person, there's no limit. God can, God's grace can never be exhausted. And so what James does here is he gives ten commands. There are ten imperative verbs. We're not going to do all ten, okay, tonight. We're going to do three. We're going to kind of lump them together, do three commands to help resolve the disunity in the church. Number one, submit to God. Look at verse 7. Submit to God. Friendship with God submits to God. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The idea of submit is a military word. It means get in the proper rank. None of us are generals. <laughs> We're all privates. God is the general. Our, our proper rank is to stay submitted to God, which means we don't withhold any area of our life to God. And a lot of times, it's those hurt feelings, it's those bad words that we have been, have been said about us or we've said about somebody else. We don't want to own up to it. We don't want to apologize for it. Those are the things that we tend to hold back from God. But listen, guys, submitting to... see. A lot of times people say, resist the devil, resist the devil, resist the devil. And yes, you should. First, submit to God. You cannot resist the devil until you submit to God. That's the big command here. I heard about a guy uh, in a foreign country. His name is, is Ivan. Uh, Ivan was a New Zealander. And uh, they passed a law about seatbelts over in New Zealand. And Ivan didn't want to follow the law. He wouldn't submit to it. Got 32 tickets. <laughs> For not wearing his seatbelt. And uh, he just he just refused. He just wouldn't submit to the law. He just wasn't going to do it. And so what Ivan did, he came up with a way to get around the system. He made him a fake seatbelt. Wasn't a real seatbelt. It just hung across him. And it worked till it didn't. Didn't get any more tickets. But he did get killed. Car wreck, head into the, head into the windshield, and he died. Because he would not submit to the law. 
one of the smartest things we can do is submit to God and he gives us the ability to resist the devil. And one of the best ways to resist the devil is not to listen, not to get into debate, not to consider. When you start considering sin, you start considering moving towards sin, you're getting in a bad place. That's why Paul said, don't give the devil a foothold. As I've said before, you give them an inch, he'll, be, he'll become a ruler. Second thing, draw near to God, verse 8. We submit to God, then we draw near to God. You can't draw near when you're living in rebellion. Look at verse 8. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When I was preparing this, I got to wondering, when our hearts are not submitted to God, and we're singing songs like, Oh, how I love Jesus. And here I am to worship and have thine own way. I wonder what that sounds like to Jesus when our hearts are not submitted to him. He says, draw near to God. And here's the beautiful thing. And he'll draw near to you. Aren't you glad God wants to draw near? Aren't you glad that's the invitation? It's an open-handed invitation. Draw near and I'll draw near to you. Listen, guys, you almost want to th think that at this point he's going to say, now, if you think I'm going to bless you at this point, you've lost your mind. But no, he doesn't. You draw near, and I will draw near to you. You seek God in repentance. You seek to align your life to God. And that way you resolve the distance between you and God. I told Laura, I said, I'm tempted to give the old illustration everybody's tired of, and so I shared it with her. She's like, I never heard that. I was like, okay, I'll share it then. <laughs> and most of you probably heard this a thousand times. If you're not, and here we go. Um, Years and years ago, before they had bucket seats and before we wore, wore our seatbelts a whole lot, we had the bench seats. And um, when you're dating and you first got married, the wife sits where? Right up next to you, right? And so the story is that, you know, 30 years later, uh, the wife's sitting over there hugging her door and the guy's sitting there driving. And she says to him, hey, we used to sit right close to each other. What happened? And, of course, he said, I never moved. <laughs> God hadn't moved, right? We draw near to God, and he'll draw near to us. And last of all, we humble ourselves before God. Verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, the grieving, mourning, and wailing, this is not what your life's supposed to be 24-7. But when you realize that you've been living in rebellion against God, and you realize that you've been contributing to the disunity in the church, it should break our hearts. Some of us pray. Uh, Robert Rowland's one of the good ones that prays a lot. Lord, let the things that break your heart break our hearts. The disunity in the body of Jesus breaks God's heart. And so he says what? Humble yourself. And guys, to, to, um, to have the resolution of disunity, it requires some humbling because it typically is going to have, somebody's going to have to go to do what? Dude, man, I'm so sorry. I said something I shouldn't have said. I accused you of something I shouldn't accuse you of. But here's the thing. I can look at an action, <clears throat> and you can, see, you can know people by their fruits. You can see if, if these people are lying or cursing. You can say that's a sin. But I can't read motives. Motives is when, what Jesus, when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. He's talking about motives of what's going on in somebody's heart, not actions that are obviously sinful or obviously not sinful. So, it's possible to submit outwardly but not submit 
inwardly. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this guy named Daniel Decker, a retired football player, and um, this guy used to be an athlete, was interviewing him, and he said, he said, Daniel, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was an ex-athlete, and he's coaching some of his kids in sports, and he said he has this thing he does with his kids when his kids come to him with a question or something like that, he'll say, all right, especially if it's about sports, he'll say, do you want me to wear a dad hat or coach hat? <laughs> and he said, he said, I give them a choice. If they want coach hat, uh, all right, so we're going we're gonna to do some drills. We're going to correct the problem. We're going to, okay, this is where you're messing up. This is where you need to do better. If you want dad hat, dude, look, I love you. Doesn't matter how well you do, how poorly you do. It doesn't change my love for you. It doesn't change my affection for you. I'm always proud of you. And what, what impressed me about this, when he said that to De and Daniel Decker's retired football player, he knows stuff about sports, okay? And he said, he said, this is what that guy does. And Decker said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to do that. That's being humble. That's saying, I'm looking for better ways to live out my life as a Christian, as a, as a spouse, as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, and all of that. And then if you truly submit, watch what happens. Verse 11. New Living Translation, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? He says, as we submit and draw near and humble ourselves, we'll be in a much, much better place to create unity in the body of Christ. This last year, I went to the, I'll close with this, I went to the uh, Cove Billy Graham Training Center, and uh, Gigi is um, Billy Graham's oldest daughter, or she loves to say, I'm the one my daddy loved the longest. <laughs> and um, I don't know why she told this story, but she told a story. She said they were, they were doing a thing in, um, in Washington, D.C. when Bill Clinton was president. And... Um, Billy got invited to go, and for some reason, Ruth couldn't go. Ruth was Billy's wife. For some reason, Ruth could not go with him. She had something going on. She couldn't go. So Billy was ruthless that night. And so he invited Gigi to go with him. And she said, it was just a wonderful time with my dad. She said, it was, you know, it's Washington, D.C. It's, it's in the president's honor, going to the White House. It's a big deal, you know. And it was at their time the Monica Lewinsky deal and they had just found a dress and they were riding home and Gigi said daddy she called him daddy daddy she said I'm a little surprised you went she said you know what Bill Clinton's done they just found the dress everybody you know is piling on she said daddy what do you think about all that and she said I'll never forget his words and I wrote them down she said he said, Gigi, our job is to love. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. And God's job is to judge. And that works pretty well for unity in the church. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? Our job is to love. Sometimes love means rebuking. Sometimes love means speaking words of correction. But our job is to truly, truly love. Holy Spirit's job is to convict. And we... And Gigi went on to say that, she said, I love to be the Holy Spirit. She said, she talked about a child of hers that had uh, been out of rehab for years and on drugs and stuff. And she said, boy, I tried to convict him so hard. 
and, and every parent would, I guess. But our job, so the Holy Spirit has to convict, and God's job is to judge. Father, and bow, we bow before you tonight. And we thank you for the unity and the love that's in this room. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you want it to be even better. And I thank you, Lord, for the peace that we can find in Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you love us all equally. And that there are no... Um, there are no lesser members in the body of Christ. Thank you that you give more grace. And Lord, I just want to hang on to that tonight that we have. We get more grace. Would you speak to your people tonight? Would you speak to your people tonight? So we bow in prayer tonight. Keep your heads bowed, my eyes closed.